morning, everyone. Turn in your Bibles today to Proverbs chapter 25. I want to introduce this morning's sermon by reflecting for just a moment on last week. Uh, I tend to go back over the things that have been preached and as I prepare for the next message. And sometimes I find things that uh, I said that may or may not be accurate, and I like to correct those things, because I'm not out to, to say things and uh, try to justify them if they're not accurate. I want the scriptures to be the final authority. And I made a comment last week. We were looking at Ezra chapter 10. We were looking at a list of people, including Levites, that had taken strange wives in the land after they returned from Babylon and how Ezra rebuked them and told them to put away these strange wives that were leading them into idolatry and to take wives of the children of Israel. And we looked at some people in there and I noted that there was a Shimei there in Ezra chapter 10 verse 23 that very likely could have been Zerubbabel's brother and therefore the tribe of Levi touching the Messianic line. Well, I went back and was studying Ezra this week and Nehemiah, and the the chronology in those books is very complicated. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of back and forth from Babylon to Judah. And it's possible that that Shimei there could have been Zerubbabel's brother, but it's unlikely. What happened in Ezra chapter 10 was about 50 years uh, after the return from Babylon. So... I'm not sure. I try not to be dogmatic about details. Um, And uh, I try to offer possible solutions that make sense when we compare Scripture with Scripture. So what I said is possible, maybe not tenable. But nonetheless, I stand by what the genealogies reveal in terms of the four families we talked about last week. So just remember that as far as these details, we're searching the Scriptures And I'm not claiming to be absolute, but I think the answer to a lot of puzzles is found right here in the Scriptures. Uh, And for those of us that seek the Lord, we'll find the answer. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. When Israel returned to the land after 70 years of captivity, it was a very, very difficult time. We tend to glamorize it when we read the stories in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther There were a lot of strange things that happened in those years. People living to great ages that weren't normal. Ezra and Nehemiah had to be very old for the chronology in those two books to match. There were leveret marriages. There were people that were forced, that were called to put away their wives that were leading them into idolatry. The opposite of what Solomon did. So there was a lot of things that happened, but despite all of that, God acted to preserve the people of Israel. And he acted to preserve the messianic line. And the preservation of Israel, even going back as far as the Babylonian captivity, all the way to the modern state, is truly a miracle of history that many people refuse to see. The fact that God preserved his people through many different trials and tribulations and judgments and attempts to eradicate them in genocides is a miracle of history that proves the God of Israel is real. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, is the God of Israel, is the only way to heaven. 
Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. It's God's glory to conceal things. And it's the honor of His people to search out the answers. That's just the way God does things. Yeah, God could give us whatever we need or whatever we desire. We don't need to pray. We don't need to ask necessarily to receive these things because God is all-powerful. But that's the rules that God has set up. That's the way God sets it up. He wants us to ask Him as a child would ask His Father. Not to just expect. And it's also God's glory to conceal things. And it's our honor to seek them out. As Christians, as the church, we are kings. We're kings. It says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 that the church is a royal priesthood. A chosen generation. Royal means of kings. In Revelation 1, the prophecy is addressed to the church unto him who has made us kings and priests. And then later in chapter 5, when the church is in heaven, represented by those 24 elders, they fall down and worship the Lamb and say, Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, kindred, and nation, and has made us kings and priests unto God. So if we're kings and the glory of God is to conceal a matter, then it's our honor to search out those truths and to stand upon them instead of endlessly being involved in doubtful disputations and refusing to take a stand or refusing to take a position. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus rebuked the people and the religious leaders. He said, search the scriptures. For it is in them you think you have eternal life. And it's them which testify of me. So those that didn't receive Christ in his day, it was unbelievable because they confessed in their religious exercises and their religious pontifications that the scriptures wrote of eternal life, but it was the scriptures that testified of Christ. If we'll search the scriptures, they testify of Messiah. We've seen that in these, last, these past three Sundays. They testify very plainly. And they also testify in many secrets. That have to be searched out. And when they're searched out. They agree with and confirm what is plain. It's the glory of kings to search out these things. The Bible is not a book to be simply read and wrote memorized. The Bible is a. Testimony to be studied, to be applied, not just read and memorized. If we'll search the scriptures and apply the scriptures, God will reveal even the deep secrets. In martial arts, we have a principle with regard to our kata or our forms that we do. It says this. Many of the secret treasures of kata are hidden in plain sight. The problem is we cannot see them or we are never told about them. Thus to train in the very basics 
is to train in the secrets of Kata. I believe the same thing could be applied to the scriptures. Many of its secrets are hidden in plain sight. We're going to see that next week on Christmas Day. You see, things that tradition claims, things that we wonder about, the answer has been hidden in plain sight all along. And we've just not searched the scriptures to find it. To read the scriptures is to compare scripture with scripture, something so many people in churchianity today fail to do. Line upon line, precept upon precept, to search them out. This is to handle the very secrets of the Lord. And then as the psalmist writes in Psalm 25, 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him and He will show them His covenant. If we'll seek the Lord in His Word, He'll reveal His secrets. And those secrets will affirm what is plain as the nose on your face. These past three Sundays, we have in a sense handled the secrets or the less obvious things of the words of God. But these things have been easily discerned from the plain. It just required a little study, a little seeking. My friends, it's God's glory to conceal a thing. He doesn't spoon-fed, never has spoon-fed mankind. Never has. And it's our honor as kings and priests in the church of the living God to seek out the matter, to seek out the secrets, to not be content with all oh, these scriptures are confusing. I don't know what it means. I'll just wait till I get to heaven to find out. No, it's our honor to seek the truth and to take a stand. And if we're shown to be wrong by the scriptures, to willfully admit it and change. We've seen that the scriptures in many plain places, and in many uh, less obvious places, truly do testify of Messiah. Right there in those genealogies, when we compare it with the Old Testament, and with Old Testament genealogy and other Old Testament prophecy, many of the secrets of the Lord come out. And the Messiah's genealogy is more of a miracle than we could even imagine. The scriptures testify of Messiah throughout. And Isaiah 55 says that those who seek the Lord, who search for Him in His Word while He may be found, which implies a time when He can't be found because there's such blindness... Those who search for him while he may be found will always go out with joy and be led forth with peace. In Isaiah 55 verse 5, in particular in the context of God revealing himself in his word and rewarding those that seek him, it says that nations that knew thee not, it's talking of Messiah, nations that knew thee not, shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God. So even as far back as Isaiah, it was prophesied that peoples not of Israel would run after Messiah to find him for God's glory. There's a testimony of those who did this very thing. Nations that knew not did this very thing, ran after Messiah. Turn to Matthew 2. 
Matthew 2 is a testimony of those that sought the Lord and found Him. And in the end, they returned home, just like Isaiah said, with joy. And they were led out, led back with peace. For the magi or the wise men from the east, God concealed a matter. And it was their honor to search it out. And I believe that we can learn from their example. I want to just deal with some questions concerning the wise men today. I just want to answer some questions. And the answers may not be what you think. But please understand that our authority is not tradition. It's not fairy tales or fables we tell at Christmas time. It's not the Catholic Church. It's not the Catholic Encyclopedia. It's not Wikipedia. The authority is the Scriptures. And many times the things we assume are true are based on tradition and we think they're based upon the Scriptures. But the Scriptures are our authority. So I want to ask a few questions today and we're going to let the Scriptures answer them. First of all, who were the wise men from the East? In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Who are these wise men? That word translated wise men. In the original language in Greek is magoi. It's the plural form of mag, mag, magi, or the word from which we get magi. Okay? The magi, if you study history, they were a class of learned professionals, a priestly class of sorts, associated with ancient Chaldea. Chaldea is the modern uh, region of Iraq and Iran. It was incorporated in the ancient Babylonian kingdom. It was part of the ancient Persian kingdom. It was part of Greece and the Roman Empire as well. The region of Chaldea is where the patriarch of our faith was from. It says that Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees, a very, very ancient place that paid, that was uh, important in the progression of world history. The Magi were learned professionals from ancient Chaldea. They were prominent in the courts of the Babylonian and the Persian empires. They were referred to as astrologers, those that studied the stars, magicians, philosophers, diviners, soothsayers. In fact, they were known to deal in all 12 of the forbidden heathen practices that God told Israel to stay away from, that God told the children of Israel to avoid enchantments, witchcraft, sorcery, soothsaying, fortune-telling, necromancy, that is, trying to commune with the dead, wizardry, trafficking with demons, magic, spells or charms, looking at omens and making prognostications, observing time, stargazing, 2 Timothy chapter 3, these activities are summed up. Ever learning 
but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, all these activities ever produce is doubts and more doubts, searching and more searching, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In fact, two examples that uh, uh, in Scripture that go back even before Babylon and Persia were the magicians in Pharaoh's court. Paul calls, names them Jonas and Jambres who withstood Moses as an example of those that are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In that sense, there are many self-professing magi or wise men in our churches today. Always seeking, always seeking, always doubting, always doubting and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Most seminary professors would fit this description. You go to seminary, you're presented with two or three interpretations, a buffet, and it's up for you to choose which one is right. And no professor will take a stand and be willing to search the Scriptures and stake his job and his profession on what the Scriptures say to be true. You see, so many in Christian education circles today follow the example of the ancient Magi, and they don't even know it. It's funny, turn to Luke chapter 12. Jesus makes a subtle reference to so-called wise men. There was a lot of them in the Jewish religious circles, always debating, always doubting, always seeking for answers outside of the Scriptures. Luke 12 29, Jesus says to the people, and it's a subtle reference to such wise men, a rebuke of sorts, that we are to be like this. Seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. See the things that wise men seek, 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 seek after and worry, 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 worry about are the things we're not to be concerned with because our Father knows our needs. We ought to be seeking the kingdom of God. And to seek the kingdom of God is to seek Him in His word. It's funny because this phrase here in verse 29, do not be of a doubtful mind. If you look at it in the original language, it's the word from which we get meteor. The meteors floating around in the heavens. In other words, Jesus said, don't meteorize. A subtle reference to those who would look at the heavens and try to discern the times and try to uh, 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 prognosticate about what's happening. We're not to be like that. But it was men like this who sought guidance superstitiously from the heavens and from omens and from witchcraft and from trafficking in demons that had great influence in the Babylonian and Persian courts. And it became a special class of people that descended down through the ages even to the days in which Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Who were these wise men that came from the east? The prophet Daniel sheds a lot of light on this. Because in the book of Daniel, we have many references to the wise men of Babylon. Let's turn over to Daniel. We're going to kind of make a quick uh, pass through the book. Daniel chapter 1. 
19 through 21. Daniel and his friends are carried captive to Babylon. It's the first captivity when Nebuchadnezzar was on his way back from defeating the Egyptians at Carchemish. About 605 B.C., Daniel and his friends were taken captive. There was another captivity, or I believe it was around 598, when Jehoiakim was ta- or Jehoiachin was taken captive. Jeconias, we talked about last week. And then in 586, another captivity. Ezekiel would have been with that second one. Then the final captivity when the, the temple was destroyed. But Daniel and his friends were carried off to Babylon. And they were to be trained and, and, and prepared to serve the king. And you know the story about the young men or the eunuchs were to eat of the king's table. And Daniel and his friends didn't want to defy the dietary laws they were supposed to observe as faithful Jews. And so a challenge was made. They said, we'll eat only vegetables. And after 10 days, you guys decide uh, who's better. And if, it, if we're somehow behind or lacking, we'll, we'll eat what the king offers. And then God did a miracle. And at the end of that time, it tells us that um, the young men were presented before Nebuchadnezzar. And he was impressed with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, oh, and their Hebrew names are used here in Daniel chapter 1. In verse 19, And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel communed or continued even into the first year of King Cyrus. You see, Daniel and his friends were found to be ten times better in their understanding than the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel is said to continue all the way to the reign of Cyrus. We know his last vision in the book of Daniel was in the third year of Cyrus. This is over 70 years that Daniel would have had great influence amongst a class of people known to be quote-unquote wise. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, the dream of the great image that represented the coming four Gentile kingdoms. And when Nebuchadnezzar couldn't even remember his dream, it tells us in chapter 2, verse 2, that he commanded all the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to show him his dream. Then you go down to verses 12 and 13. The king's very angry because these wise men can't tell him what he dreamed. They're like, who has ever been able to do something like this? You're not even going to tell us what you dreamed, and you expect us to come up with your dream and to interpret it. That's impossible. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar was very angry and furious, verse 12, and he commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. So here we have magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans grouped together as all the wise men of Babylon, and that included Daniel and his three friends. Later on in the chapter, Daniel demonstrates that God, not the stars, is the revealer of secrets. He tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream and then he interprets it because God revealed it to him, not the stars. 
And as a result of that, Daniel is awarded in verse 48 of chapter 2 as the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. And likewise, his three friends were elevated as well. So very quickly, not only is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego numbered with the wise men, but Daniel himself becomes chief of the wise men in Babylon, chief of the Magi. Daniel, the head of the Magi, his three friends of the Magi. Why do you think their refusal to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 could not escape the public eye? I mean, an average person could refuse to bow down in a whole crowd of people. Nobody's really going to know about it. They could get away with it. But they couldn't because they were notable authorities amongst the Magi. You go to chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar speaks of another dream he has. God's gradually bringing him to a place where he finally surrenders to the Lord and is made completely right. He finally understands that it's God who puts men in position of leadership and government. It's God who brings them down. And that Nebuchadnezzar's success was because of the Lord. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar praises him and acknowledges him as the king of heaven. It involves Nebuchadnezzar being struck by God with a sickness that made him act like an animal for for some time. And he was eventually restored and there was a dream. And once again, Daniel is able to interpret the dream. In chapter 4, verse 9... Nebuchadnezzar says, O Belteshazzar, which was Daniel's Babylonian name, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation. Daniel's able to do it. And as a result, and here Nebuchadnezzar refers to him as the master of the magicians, a place of great influence amongst the ancient magi. And he's, he goes to him because there's something about Daniel that's different than the rest. Daniel knows secrets not by the stars, not by the omens, but by the Spirit of God. So long, long ago, you have this person of great influence amongst the people that discovers secrets by another way. <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar was on his throne 43 years As Daniel saw a series of these things happen. After Nebuchadnezzar, his son was there for two years. That son is the one who restored King Jeconias. Then there was a son-in-law for four years. His his grandson for three months. Another son-in-law was king for two years. And then had his son or Nebuchadnezzar's grandson sit on the throne while he was out fighting wars. A long, long time passed and before we get to chapter 5. Belshazzar's feast. Belshazzar was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. This would have been about 539 B.C., 66 years or so after Daniel's first promotion. And here in chapter 5, verse 7, the wise men of Babylon are called the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, Belshazzar in this great drunken feast and drunken orgy sees a hand come down and write a strange cryptic message on the wall. And he calls the wise men to interpret it. But they're not able to do it. 
And then you get a little bit later in verses 8 through 12, the queen mother. The queen mother suddenly remembers this Daniel from the days of the king's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar was the grandson via his mother. And she remembers him as the master of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And that he was able to dissolve doubts. That's what distinguished him amongst the Magi. If you read her testimony here, it says, um, There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, whom King Nebuchadnezzar thy father the king made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, forasmuch as an excellent spirit and knowledge, and understanding, interpreting of dreams, showing of hard sentences, and dissolving of doubts. What distinguished him amongst the Magi. So, Belshazzar calls this Daniel. For whatever reason, he had kind of fallen out of influence. He was called. He interpreted the writing on the wall. And he was immediately promoted. Not just the chief of the Magi, but the third ruler in the kingdom. Who was the first ruler? Well, it was King Nabonidus who was uh, Belshazzar's father. He was a general off in the field. His son was Korek sitting on the throne. So Daniel as the third ruler would have been next in line to the king on the throne because of his wisdom. Well, that night King Belshazzar was slain. The city of Babylon fell, a miracle of history, a great military engagement. And the Persians, the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon and the Babylonian kingdom, that first Gentile dominion, Daniel prophesied, fell. And the Persians came to power. And immediately we get into chapter 6 when Darius the Mede had a period of rule over Babylon. He was King Cyrus's uncle for about two years. He immediately saw Daniel's value and promoted him. Daniel was the chief of three presidents that was over 120 governors in the Persian Empire, what the Persians called satraps. Daniel was the first of three presidents over 120 Persians appointed by Darius the Mede. Later in chapter 6, after the matter of the lion's den, there's a decree made by King Darius for the people of his realm to fear the God of Daniel. Something that distinguished him from the other wise men. And then we're told at the end of the chapter that Daniel prospered under the Persians, even to the reign of Cyrus the Great. When we get to chapter 10, we're told that this vision is given to Daniel, chapter 10 through the end of the book, in the third year of King Cyrus, which would have been 534 B.C., plus or minus a year or so. So in other words, 71 years transpired between Daniel 1 and Daniel 10. 70 plus years of influence in ancient Babylon amongst the wise men of Chaldea. 70 years plus. His wisdom, Daniel's writings, his testimonies, they would have been preserved and they would have been well known in the traditions of the Magi. In fact, when you look at the book of Daniel, it's interesting 
Daniel as it was originally written, as it was originally preserved. Chapter 1 through verses, verse 4 of chapter 2 was written in Hebrew because it concerns Israel. But beginning in chapter 2, I believe it's the start of the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Verse 4, all the way until chapter 7, verse 28, the book is written in Aramaic. Aramaic would have been the language of ancient Babylon, the language of the Magi. And those chapters amazingly deal with Gentile dominion, the Gentile kingdoms. And then beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, through the end of the book, it reverts back to Hebrew, where Israel and Jerusalem are the focus. So you had a great part of Daniel written in the language of the Magi that spoke of coming Gentile kingdoms, things that would have interested them, things they would have began to see come to pass. The Magi through the years with these writings would have seen that Babylon fell, would have seen that Persia was the second kingdom, would have seen the Greeks overthrow the Persians, would have seen the Romans, the great and terrible fourth beast, come upon the scene. It was all written down by Daniel, the chief of the Magi, who prophesied kingdoms and prophesied a Messiah. If you go to Esther chapter 1, Verse 13, when the king Ahasuerus has this incident where he calls his wife Vashti and she doesn't come, she snubs him. It says that he consulted the wise men in his court. This would have been about 35 years after Daniel's last appointed prophecy. We have wise men still in the Persian court. I believe that the wise men from the east in Matthew chapter 2 were descended from the wise men of Babylon and Persia of Daniel's day. And they would have been very much familiar with his writings. In my opinion, these wise, men's were, were, these wise men were not Jews. You see, it says in Isaiah 11 that when the root of Jesse comes, it, after him Gentiles will seek. This was specifically fulfilled when Gentiles of ancient Babylon came seeking him. And it's fulfilled as the church is built. Matthew chapter 2. In verse 2. We've already read it. I'll read it again. When they came to Jerusalem, the wise men said, Where is he born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and come to worship. And if these were Jews, that question makes little sense. They speak of the Jews as something other than themselves. If I came to Washington and was looking for the president as an American, I wouldn't say, where's the president of the Americans? I'd say, where's my president? Because I'm one of them. See, these were... Gentiles, and I think what they ask here of Herod in chapter 2, verse 2, indicates that. And there's also an interesting story regarding the church of the nativity. The church of the nativity is an edifice in present-day Bethlehem. I don't believe it's authentic. I don't believe it's where Jesus was born. It's a typical Catholic myth. But it's a very old church that was built 
between A.D. 327 and 333 by Emperor Constantine and his mother Helena after Christianity was declared the official religion of Rome, the Pergamus Church period. Constantine's mother went down to the land of Israel and started going around and declaring this is the place where this happened, this is the place where this happened. And a lot of times these were just places where the Romans had had uh, shrines to worship their false gods. And what Constantine needed to do was to replace that with Christian names to keep everything in order. So there's, I, I do not believe whatsoever that's an authentic location, but as far back as A.D. 320, or 330, it was identified as the place of Christ's birth. It was rebuilt in 565 by the Emperor Justinian. And then in A.D. 614, the Persians invaded the land of Israel. The very people that Daniel dealt with, the very people from whom the wise men apparently came, they invaded the Holy Land and they destroyed lots and lots of Christian churches that had been built since the days of Constantine. But they didn't touch the church of the nativity. They left it alone. The story is that the Persian commander entered into the, the building and was shown an old mosaic. An old mosaic, that's a, a piece of art where they take little stones of different colors and place them very intricately to form a picture. It was an old mosaic of the wise men coming to Bethlehem seeking the child. And in that mosaic, the wise men were dressed in Persian dress. And they had the skin of Persian people. And the Persian commander said, hey, that's us. Leave that church alone. And it stands to this day. So as far back as at least A.D. 600, the Magi were identified with ancient Persia. That's who the wise men were. They were descended from those with whom Daniel communed in the Babylonian and Persian courts. They would have been well aware of Daniel's influence and his writings. And they came seeking truth from the east. Babylon is straight east from Jerusalem. I've answered the question about who they were. What brought the wise men to Jerusalem? If they were seeking, what caused them to come to Jerusalem? Chapter 2, verse 2, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And then if you go later to verse 8, Herod sends them to Bethlehem to go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw, or in, in, in the perfect tense, had seen in the east, went before them. Behold, suddenly the star that they had seen before is now appearing. And it went before them till it came and stood where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. What was it that brought the wise men from Babylon to Jerusalem? Was it the star? Or was it the scriptures? In chapter 2, verse 2, they, their testimony is, We have seen his star in the east. The appearance of a star sometime before motivated them to search. They saw it in the east. 
When we look at verses 8 and 9, the language there indicates that after they left Herod, this star that had been seen previous suddenly reappeared. It hadn't been there all along guiding them. If it had been guiding them all along, they wouldn't have had to stop in Jerusalem to speak with Herod. The star appeared. They were motivated to search it out. At some point later, they came to Jerusalem. What is it that brought them to Jerusalem? Was it the star of the scriptures? And then the star reappears and it leads them to the house, not the stable, where the young child, not the newborn baby, was. And then in verse 10, that says that when they saw the star, they suddenly rejoiced. That reaction doesn't make sense if the star had been leading them all along. It reappeared after a time of absence and they rejoiced. So what brought them to Jerusalem? If the star appeared and then disappeared and then appeared again after they had arrived in Jerusalem, why did they come to Jerusalem? There's ancient testimony that around this time there was a general expectation of a king or Messiah to be born in Judea to rule the world. Even Buddha, as far back as 500 BC, spoke of a general expectation of a Messiah that would come and a Messiah for whom the people he taught should be looking. Buddha prophesied a coming Messiah. I've actually got the writing at home. So there was an expectation. In Haggai 2, Messiah is called the desire of all nations, which means that the nations were seeking a Messiah. And there was an expectation that he had something to do with Judea and that he would rule the world. You see, there was a star that the wise men saw, it caught their interest as they gazed into the heavens looking for answers. And it reminded them perhaps of the legends and the stories of Daniel who was able to interpret signs such as this. And the star didn't drive them to Jerusalem. The star drove these to the scriptures and not to divination to dissolve their doubts and to give them an answer. You see, in the scriptures which would have been well known in Babylon because many Jews stayed behind and never returned. So the scriptures would have been available. And in the scriptures, in speaking of Messiah, Numbers 24, 17 said a star would come out of Jacob. Jacob is Judea. The prophecy was there. They saw a star. They were driven to the scriptures. And the scriptures said a star would come out of Jacob or Judea. In Daniel 9, the great 70 weeks prophecy, they would have known that Messiah had to be near if they did a few calculations. Messiah the Prince would only be about 35 years away, so they knew the time was near, just like the Jews in the temple waiting. And the focus of that entire prophecy is none other than the city of Jerusalem. It speaks of six things that must happen in Jerusalem. The Bible in Deuteronomy 18 prophesied of Messiah. He'd be a prophet like Moses. Psalm 110, he would be a priest. 
And then in Daniel's writings, in the Aramaic of the book of Daniel, he would be a king with a kingdom that would precede the fourth Gentile world dominion. You see, the star was just a sign. It was a puzzle. But the scriptures are where the secret was revealed. It was the testimony of the scriptures, I believe, that brought these men to Jerusalem. A star could have led them anywhere. Stars appeared and weird things appeared in the heavens all the time. In fact, the ancient testimonies speak of eclipses and things that happened during different events. And some of that is what helps us come up with dates of ancient events and therefore figure out the chronology of the scriptures exactly. The star drove them to the scriptures after the example of Daniel, the chiefest of all the wise men whose testimony would have been known, whose writings would have been known. Daniel's writings pointed them to Jerusalem. And when they came to Jerusalem, the scriptures were searched and it was the prophet Micah that pointed them to Bethlehem. It wasn't the sign or the experience, but the scriptures that drove them. It was the scriptures that unlocked the puzzle of the sign and confirmed it to be what the scriptures said it would be. That's what brought these men who would have been familiar with Daniel and his long history of influence and what caused Daniel to be different than the other wise men. They would have been uh, familiar with his writings that wrote of Messiah and wrote of Jerusalem and wrote of Gentile kingdoms in their own language. And they came looking in the right place. Who were the wise men? We've answered it. What brought them to Jerusalem? We've answered it. Another question for you today. When did the wise men arrive? It's only 10 after 12 and half of you all look like you're asleep. Is this boring? Maybe it is. I'll quit. Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. When did the wise men arrive in Bethlehem? Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. So Herod wanted to know, when did the star appear? Verse 11, the first part, it says, They were coming to the house and saw the young child with Mary his mother. And then in verse 16, Herod gets angry when the wise men don't return and bring him word. He saw that he was mocked of the wise men. And he sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had indiligently inquired of the wise men. Herod's two-year stipulation there was based upon what he had inquired about from the wise men. What he had asked the wise men is when the star appeared. So the star had appeared two years approximately before they showed up in Jerusalem. Does that mean it took the wise men two years to come to Bethlehem? Well, no. Not at all. Babylon to Jerusalem is about 750 miles. If you go to Ezra chapter 7 verse 9, Ezra is in Babylon and the Lord calls him to take people to go back and check on the remnant and to teach them the word of God and to help them in reestablishing themselves in the land. Ezra tells us in chapter 7 
that he left or departed Babylon on the first day of the first month and that he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. Babylon to Jerusalem was a four-month journey. It wasn't two years. Four months. We know based on the testimony here in Matthew 2 that the star appeared two years before the Magi showed up in Jerusalem. They needed time to discover what it means. They took time, obviously, to search the Scriptures. And then there would have been a four-month journey. And following this four-month journey, the star would have reappeared and led them to a house. Not to a manger. A house with a young child. Now when you look at the Greek word used here for young child versus the one used in Luke chapter 2 when the shepherds find a babe in a manger, they're two different words. And some people make a big issue about how the word in Luke 2 is um, an infant and the word here in Matthew can't be a small, small baby. It has to be, you know, maybe a two-year-old child. Well, that's not exactly correct. Those words are pretty much interchangeable because the word used for young child here in Matthew 2 in Luke 1 is used about John the Baptist when he's only eight days old. So obviously the words are interchangeable. So we can't make a big issue out of that. But what we can know is that Christ was in a house, that he was a young child. And that word young child would be other than the night he was born. A babe, a newborn. Could have been a few days later. Could have been some months later. No way it was two years later. The chronology doesn't allow it. Wasn't the same night as the shepherds when they came to Bethlehem. That's a Catholic myth. There's a lot of Catholic myths out there that we believe. There's a lot of myths we believe in American history. Like the Civil War was fought over slavery that nobody questions because nobody seeks out historical records. Lots of myths. So is it any surprising that we, is it at all surprising that we in the church fall for them? That's a Catholic myth. I would tell you that Jesus had to be at least 41 days old before the wise men showed up in Bethlehem. Turn over to Luke chapter 2. The wise men obviously saw the star two years before they showed up in Herod's court. The Bible never says that Christ, that there was two years between the star and Christ's birth. It doesn't say that at all. The star appeared two years earlier. It didn't take them two years to get there. So there must have been a time of seeking and searching the scriptures and then a four-month journey. So the two years could have started before Christ's birth sometime. All we know is it was two years from the appearing of the star to Herod's court. Christ could have been born any time in that two-year period. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. 
On the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised. Now, he wasn't circumcised in the temple. I think I've caught myself speaking of Simeon and Anna when Jesus was circumcised in the temple. That's not correct. You see, on the eighth day, the child was circumcised. But his mother couldn't come into the temple until she was purified. If we look at Leviticus chapter 12, if a woman had a son, she was considered unclean for seven days. Unclean with regard to the home and things like that. On the eighth day, her child was circumcised and then she went through a period of purifying 33 days. A total of 40 days she was not allowed to come into the sanctuary or into the temple. So when a male child was born, the woman couldn't come into the temple for 40 days. Of those 40 days, the first seven she was considered unclean with regard to her home. If it was a daughter, she was considered unclean for 14 days. And then another 66 days for a total of 80 would have to pass before she could come into the temple. So Mary and Joseph were not in the temple when baby Jesus was sacrificed. I mean, circumcised. It was 40 days before she could come into the temple. And so on the 41st day, they brought him to the temple. That's when Simeon saw him. And prophesied over him. After her purifying, they were to bring a sacrifice to the temple to complete the mother's purification and to dedicate the child or redeem the child before the Lord. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, we're told they're to bring a lamb and a pigeon or a turtle dove. One, the lamb for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering for the mother. But if they were poor, if they couldn't afford it, if they could not get a lamb, then they could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons and use one of them for the burnt offering. We know here in Luke that they didn't offer a lamb. They offered a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. So obviously Mary and Joseph were too poor to afford a lamb for this purification burnt offering. As of the 41st day from Jesus' birth, Mary's, or, or the presentation of him in the temple, they were poor. They couldn't even afford a lamb. Surely they would have given their best for a burnt offering if they could have afforded it. So if they couldn't afford a lamb on the 30, 41st day, my friends, there weren't no wise men. There weren't no very valuable gifts, very valuable in small quantities. Else they would have undoubtedly offered a lamb the very best they could for the Messiah. So we know, I believe, based on these scriptures, that the wise men weren't there before 41 days from Jesus' birth. However, when we look at history, Herod the Great died sometime just before Passover in 4 B.C., Passover in 4 B.C. would have been April 10th. So a lot of stuff had to happen. And then Herod dies. And then Joseph and Mary find out about it. And they come back from Egypt and turn aside to Nazareth. So Herod died sometime just before April 10th in 4 B.C. Now we've talked about the time of Christ's birth and when it could have been in times past. And I don't want to get into that today. 
People that say it could not possibly have happened on December 25th, that's not true. We can't know exactly when Jesus was born. It makes sense to me that he would have been born in the fall around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles that symbolized God dwelling with his people. A partial fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. We know that he truly fulfilled the first feast of the springtime season in his first coming. And I believe those fall feasts will be ultimately fulfilled at his second coming. But it makes sense to me based on the course of Abijam and when Zacharias would have been in the temple that he would have been born sometime in the fall. And what's interesting is that in 5 B.C., the Feast of Tabernacles would have started on October 16th, 5 B.C. Herod would have been dead before April 10th, 4 B.C. That means the 41st day, if Christ was born on the opening day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the 41st day when he was presented in the temple would have been December 25th, 4 B.C. So this idea that we're way off base because we choose to talk about Christ's birth on December 25th, most of that's cultural. But Christ could have been born in December. If He was born to fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles, then He was conceived around December 25th. Or it could be that He was presented in the temple 41 days after His birth if He was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Scriptures don't say. We can speculate but to argue that December, the end of December, has nothing whatsoever to do with Christ coming into the world is foolishness. It is, it's just as much of a possibility of December 25th as any other day, I suppose, because we can't know. We know when Herod died. We know when the Feast of Tabernacles was. When Herod found out and he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill the children... Mary, uh, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Flee! Get up off your rear end, get your stuff and get out of here and go to Egypt. Well, from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt in those days, outside of Herod's jurisdiction was only about 40 miles. If they fled, they could have been in Egypt in two or three days. They could have been out of Herod's jurisdiction in two or three days. If they went all the way to present-day Cairo or the Nile River or in the vicinity of Goshen where the Israelites were preserved by God back in the Exodus, that's about 265 miles as the crow flies. If you compare that with the time it took Ezra to go 750 miles, you're looking at Ezra's pace about one and a half months to get to Cairo or the ancient land of Goshen. But they were told to flee. So they obviously moved fast. They didn't have to take that long to get to Egypt. There would have been probably just a short stay there. And they would have returned sometime after Herod died. Sometime after April 10th, 4 BC. So if Christ was born on the Feast of Tabernacles. And he was presented in the temple around the end of December. Then sometime between the end of December... And probably February, the wise men would have had to come. Mary and Joseph would have had to flee and go to Egypt. Herod would have died in April. And then sometime after that, they would have come back and turned aside to Nazareth. Friends, these are not events that happened over a long extended period of time. They're events that happened over in less than a year, maybe around six months or less. The wise men, in my opinion, came after... 41 days 
but they would have had to come within three months of the birth for this chronology to agree with what we know concerning Herod's death. If Christ was born on December 25th, things would have happened much quicker, but these things are certainly possible. A man I respect greatly with regard to Old Testament chronology argues that based on a lot of things that the shepherds came the night of Christ's birth and the wise men showed up the next day in Jerusalem looking for the Christ. And by a day or so later, Mary and Joseph were relocated into a house and the wise men showed up just two or three days after he was born. And then they fled almost immediately and were gone for only a few weeks. I respect this man. I think you can't ignore the fact that Mary and Joseph weren't able to offer a lamb. With those treasures presented to them, surely they could have afforded or would have wanted to offer their best. When we search the scriptures, I believe we see they did not come the night Christ was born. They would not have come earlier than 41 days because of his presentation in the temple. But they would have come not long after that. And what happened, happened very quickly. These men saw a star. They searched the scriptures. It drove them to Jerusalem. They found the Christ child. And immediately Herod went after him. And they had to flee and then later return. Who were these wise men? What brought them to Jerusalem? When did they arrive? How many wise men were there? I know the kids did a little play this morning and there were three wise men and that's tradition and that's what uh, the stories all say. But the fact of the matter is the scriptures never tell us how many wise men there were. There could have been 200. There could have been two. We just know it was plural, more than one. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, they came to the, the house and saw the young child, worshipped him, and it says they opened their treasures. They presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These gifts were very valuable in that day, even in small quantities, just as they are today. There weren't three wise men, my friends. There were three types of gifts. To say or to assume that three gifts means three wise men is quite a leap. We can't know that. Three is not the number of the people. But it was the number of the gifts and a prophetic acknowledgement of who Messiah was. You see, gold was the gift of kings. Gold is what was used... What Solomon treasured, the great king, what was used in the temple. Gold was a gift of royalty. Frankincense was used on the, in the temple on the altar of incense and it was associated with the priestly office. Frankincense was the gift of a priest. And then myrrh, we're told, or we learn from the Old Testament, was part of the anointing oil. And when Elijah was sent to anoint his replacement, he anointed Elisha. Prophets, they were anointed. Prophet, prophets, they suffered. Show me a prophet in the scripture that didn't suffer for his ministry. Even Moses, look at all he had to put up with. Myrrh was used for burial. It pointed to suffering. 
It was the gift of a prophet. You see, this, these gifts presented to Messiah foreshadowed his offices, that of a king, that of a priest, and that of a prophet. It's funny when you look at Psalm 45, Messiah is spoken of. It says, all thy garments smell of myrrh. And the Messiah described there is the one who speaks for God. The one who tells God's word, who has God's word on his lips. He's Messiah the prophet and he's clothed with myrrh. You see, these gifts were a prophetic acknowledgement of what the scriptures taught concerning Messiah. And it shows us that the wise men searched Messiah in the scriptures. They knew he would be a prophet. Deuteronomy 18. They knew he would be a priest. Psalm 110. They knew he would be a king. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. That's why they brought those gifts. They knew who Messiah would be. They were a prophetic foreshadowing of Christ's divine nature, his threefold office of the very things that Simeon himself declared in Luke chapter 2. We often speak of Christ as the king, the priest, the prophet, and in a sense in our lives as Christians, he's all of these things. But these gifts were a prophecy of how he would be used. You see, Christ was a prophet. At his first advent when he was born in Bethlehem until he went back to heaven on the feast of Pentecost in A.D. 30, he was a prophet. Right now in the church age, he is a priest. He intercedes for us before the Father. But the day's coming when he will be a king at the millennium. A literal, physical king. Yes, he's king in our hearts. Yes, he rules and reigns over his church. But there's coming a day when he will be a physical, literal king that sits on a physical, literal throne. And the wise men knew this. That's why they gave him gold. They knew he would intercede. That's why they gave him frankincense. And they knew he would suffer as God's prophets always did. That's why they gave him myrrh. So three isn't the number of the wise men. It's the number of the gifts that point to the threefold office of the Messiah. Prophet, priest, and king. As I said, these gifts, even in small quantity, were very valuable. Even in that day. day. Today, gold is very valuable. A brick of gold is worth several hundred thousand dollars. Just a brick. Frankincense isn't cheap. I can prove that to you because right here in my hand, I've got five milliliters of frankincense. Pure frankincense. An essential oil that we use for different things. Not cheap. Just this five milliliters, I think, what, was like 50 bucks or something, Jamie? If you guys want to, are curious, adults, be careful with the kids. I'll pass it around. You can see and smell frankincense. It's real. But kids, only the adults, are, you can let the kids smell it. Please don't spill it. We use it for a variety of ailments in the house, and it's not cheap. Myrrh, of course, is very expensive as well. It's used, Nicodemus used myrrh to help prepare Jesus for burial. In John chapter 19. Who were the wise men? What brought them to Jerusalem? When did they arrive? How many were there? We don't know. Could have been a whole crowd of them. However many it was, it brought the attention of people when they arrived in Jerusalem. 
wasn't a single person. It was a caravan, obviously. And gold, frankincense, and myrrh, very valuable gifts, would have at least allowed Mary and Joseph to purchase the lamb and do the best in terms of a burnt offering. But undoubtedly, it also financed their trip to Egypt, gave them uh, resources to live upon for whatever time they were there and financed their return journey. Last question I want to ask today is what happened after the wise men returned home another way? We tend to end the Christmas story there when so much continued to happen in a short space of time. You can find the relevant scriptures here beginning at verse 13 through 23. Um, The angel came to Joseph and told him to arise and take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and to stay there until he was brought word again because Herod wanted to destroy his life. And then we read about Herod killing the babies in fulfillment of prophecy in Bethlehem. Uh, And then Herod died. It wouldn't have been very long after this, just a few months, if at all, that long. When Herod was dead, verse 19, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. So Joseph gets up and comes back. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. So Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt. They were there for a short time. And they returned according to the angel's instruction to the land of Israel. The instruction wasn't specific. And it's obvious that Joseph intended to return to Judea. He intended to go back to the home of his family's heritage, to Judea. But he was afraid when he discovered that Herod's son reigned in Herod's steed. Notwithstanding, verse 22, the second part, being warned of God in a dream, that is another dream, not the first one that told him to return, he returned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Mary and Joseph, after they were supplied with very valuable gifts of the wise men, probably within three months' time of Christ's birth, around that time, fled quickly into Egypt and stayed there. Could have been as little of a distance as 50-so miles. Could have been more if they went all the way to Goshen or the present day location of Cairo. They went down to Egypt. The angel told them, you can return now because Herod is dead. They intended to return to Judea. But when they found out that Herod's son was reigning, they were afraid. The angel appeared again and said uh, um, to go into Galilee. And so they were on their way to Judea, would have turned aside and went into Galilee. Now turn to Luke chapter 2. Here's where people sometimes imagine a contradiction that's not there at all. Luke chapter 2, verse 38. Here we have Mary and Joseph in the temple on the 41st day. Simeon is prophesied over Messiah. Anna, the prophetess, sings praises and gives testimony. In verse 38... The 41st day, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus are in the temple. But in verse 39, 
And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. So we have them in the temple on the 41st day, and in the very next verse, after they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they were in Nazareth. So when did all this stuff happen with the wise men? I mean, did they go straight to Nazareth after the temple? But Matthew says they went to Egypt first and tried to come back and then went to Nazareth. Do we have a contradiction here? No, we don't. There's just a lot that took place between verse 38 and verse 39 that didn't need to be revealed to us in Luke because it's revealed to us in Matthew. Notice when they went to Nazareth in Luke 2.39. They only went when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord. Turn to Hosea chapter 11. Another messianic prophecy fulfilled in the days of Jesus' birth. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. Matthew in chapter 2 verse 15 talks about them going to Egypt and returning to fulfill what was written in the prophets. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So in Luke when it says they performed all things according to the law of the Lord, that wasn't finished at the temple on the 41st day. There was more that had to be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, you say, well, that's not the law. The law is the Torah. It's the first part of the Hebrew Bible. Hosea is in the, the prophets, the, Ketu, the, the, the Nevi'im. doesn't make any sense. It's funny, if you look at the New Testament, the law is, that word law is often used to refer to the entire Tanakh, the entire Old Testament Bible. Jesus himself, in John 10, rebukes the Pharisees and says it's written in your law. And then he quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. So Jesus rever- refers to the Ketuvim as the law, the Psalms. In John chapter 12, the people ask Jesus a question from their law. Doesn't our law say that Christ will abide forever? They're referring to Isaiah 9 and Daniel chapter 7. The prophets is called the law. The same Ketuvim where we find Hosea. And then in John 15, Jesus rebukes the people, saying again, drawing attention to your law or their law. And he quotes Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. So oftentimes the word law means the entire Old Testament word of God. And you see all things were not performed according to the law of the Lord for the baby Jesus until Hosea 11.1 was fulfilled. So between Luke 2.38 and 2.39, we know what was going on. They fled to Egypt, Matthew chapter 2. And Luke chapter 2 verse 39 is 100% accurate. When everything according to the law of the Lord was fulfilled, then they went to Nazareth. It harmonizes with Matthew. I believe that Mary and Joseph returned to Nazareth sometime before Jesus was a year old. So all of this happened within his first year. At the end of Matthew chapter 2, we have a very important reference here that often gets neglected in the Christmas story. You see, it's a very sad truth about Messiah that was told Mary by Simeon, that was demonstrated by the fact that he had to 
flee to Egypt that was demonstrated by the fact that it wasn't, aside from some shepherds, it wasn't the locals, it wasn't the family of Mary and Joseph that came to worship. It took Gentiles from over uh, 700 miles away to come. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. There is no phrase in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene. This is a paraphrase of a very long prophecy. In other words, what Matthew is doing is taking a very long prophecy and he's summing it up in one word. We talked about how cities become associated with certain things over time. What does it mean he shall be called a Nazarene? He had to go to Nazareth because he was rejected, even as a child. If you were to sum up Isaiah 53, the great prophecy of the suffering Messiah, in one word, he shall be a Nazarene. He shall be rejected. I'll go back to Proverbs 25, our original passage this morning. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, and it's the honor of kings to search it out. We see that demonstrated in the story of the wise men. God concealed matters. Kings searched it out. It was to their honor, and they returned rejoicing and praising God to their home. And so said in motion all that had been prophesied. Concerning Messiah, even his rejection. What's the lesson for us? We can talk about history and talk about times and events, but what's the lesson here? It's not enough to read and study. How do we apply it? When we see signs and observations, when we see when we have experiences, we should be like the wise men. They were driven to search the scriptures. For the answers. And those answers dissolved all doubts. Too many times in churchianity today, we follow the signs and the experiences and those become the judge of truth instead of those things driving us to the scriptures to dissolve all doubts. In Amos chapter 3 verse 7, God says very clearly that He reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets, in the scriptures. God doesn't do anything in terms of judgment without warning people by revealing His secrets to the prophets. And then in John 16, Jesus said the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would show the New Testament writers the secrets of things to come. We have the Word of God. We have more than the wise men did. They only had Daniel's writings in the Old Testament. We have the writings of the apostles that Jesus promised would involve things to come. We have the Word of God. We have its secrets. And they're hidden in plain sight. It's our privilege to search them out. Because we are kings and priests unto the Lord our God as part of the church. It's God's glory to conceal a matter. It's our honor to search it out. And we don't find the answers in the temporary. We don't find the answers in the riddles. We find it in the Word. Like the wise men who were driven to the scriptures and found the answer. Like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who put Paul's teaching to the test. They didn't just believe Paul because of the testimony of this man who was a 
great missionary, they put his words to the test by searching the scriptures. That's what we should do. That's the lesson for us today. And then when we have searched the scriptures, it's our duty to act. Just like the wise men did when they, upon what they discovered. To seek is the honor of kings. And we, when we have found, it's our duty to act. If we search the scriptures and God reveals the deep truths of them to us and we don't do anything, then we have failed and we have not followed the example of the wise men. Are we willing as they who undoubtedly were men of influence, they had their own families, their own homes, their own jobs, their own matters they had to attend to. They saw a sign, they searched the scriptures and what did they do? They dropped everything and made a four-month journey to seek the Lord and follow His guidance. Are you willing to drop everything tomorrow and seek the Lord and follow His will? Are you allowed, willing to get out of your comfort zone? Are you willing to be spontaneous if the Lord reveals His will to you in the Word of God? If not, you're not like the wise men. And we should be. You see, it's the book that they followed to Jerusalem. It's the book that has the answers. Hobiblios, the book. The Word of God, not the signs, not the symbols, not the experiences. May this be our measuring stick. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time of teaching today. We thank You for this great lesson seen time and time again in the Scriptures and demonstrated by the wise men, Lord. They saw a sign. They were driven to seek an answer. They were driven to the Scriptures. The testimony of one of Your servants survived the ages and they found the answer and went to Jerusalem. And then they were led to the specific place by you yourself and brought gifts, worshiping the Messiah, showing who and what he would be, not only for his people, the king of the Jews, but for all people, even the Gentiles who would seek him. And then, Lord, you preserved your Messiah when his life was in danger. And you fulfilled everything according to your good word. Even the prophecy that he would be rejected. And because he was rejected, we can have life. And we praise God that one day those who rejected him will call for him. And when they do, he will come and he will save. Help us to be like these wise men, Lord. Not to look to tradition for answers or signs or symbols. But to go to the scriptures and to seek the truth, Lord, for it is the glory of God to conceal the matter and it's the honor of kings to search it out. And as we search it out, Lord, searching the scriptures, may we act upon what we find. Thank you so much, Lord, for the word of God, the written word of God and the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you for our food. Bless it to nourish our body today. Thank you for our guests. I pray they were blessed today. And may we have a wonderful time of fellowship and bring us again back together next week for another special service. In Jesus' name, amen.